This is an ABC podcast. I've got a suggestion for a new podcast. Oh, yes. I'm all ears. It's called The Kneecast. About knees, as in the physical part of your body? I've got this limp. <laughs> this would be a personal journey. <laughs> be like a crime-solving problem. I can see the podcast limping quite early in the piece. I've got all these people nagging me to have a knee replacement and I'm determined to actually beat it. So you can follow me week by week as I fight against the masses who want to push me into an operating theatre for a knee replacement while I murder my quadriceps, hamstrings and gluteals. I would absolutely listen to that, especially if in season two you actually did get the knee replacement and then we could go through the, re- the surgery and recovery with you. <laughs> I think it could be a good podcast. I think people could listen to it. Well, as much as I'd love to chuck Coronacast out the window and only do Kneecast from now on, I guess we probably should do a show about the coronavirus. Are you saying that we need to do a coronacast? Oh, my Lord, Norman, no. <laughs> I'm health reporter Tegan Taylor. And I'm physician and journalist Dr Norman Swan. It is Wednesday, the 3rd of August, 2022. And one of the questions that we're getting a lot about from people is how quickly you can be reinfected with COVID-19. And the, the other question that kind of goes alongside that is if it's a really short period of time between when you first test positive and then when you've got symptoms again, is it a reinfection or is it perhaps a rebound infection? Maybe we can dig into this a bit because the US President Joe Biden has reportedly got a rebound infection of COVID-19. And Jonathan, I'm assuming it's your son, Jonathan Norman, because he does take a keen interest in Washington politics, asking... Joe Biden has a rebound case of COVID-19. What does this mean? Is this common knowledge? Come on, Norman and Tegan, give us the lowdown. So what is a rebound case here? Well, it's not my Jonathan, but it's another Jonathan. There are more than one in the world. So the evidence isn't huge, but there is a preprint, in other words, a paper that hasn't been peer-reviewed yet on this. And they looked at the seven-day and 30-day COVID-19 rebound rates after Paxlovid treatment. And what they found was that at seven days, the rebound rate was about 3.5% and 5.4%, and that was for infection. And for symptoms, it was between 2 and 6%, between 7 and 30 days. And so just to clarify, Paxlovid is an antiviral. The idea is that it's maybe suppressing the ability of the virus to replicate in your body, but maybe in some people, once you stop taking it, the virus that's left can start replicating again? Well, in fact, that's the conclusion of some researchers and experts in this field, is that you basically haven't had enough Paxlovid, and that's why you get the rebound. It maybe isn't a second infection, it's just that the infection comes back because you haven't eliminated the virus from your body. They also studied the other antiviral on the market, Molnupiravir, and found that it rebounds as well, and that when you you analyse the statistics, there wasn't much difference between the two. So someone who's got a rebound infection, the, the idea is that they've got virus that's replicating in their body. Presumably they could then infect people around them? Yes, that's the presumption. So you've got to re-isolate. The good news here is that you tend not to get severely ill with the rebound infection. Your symptoms come back, you can feel a bit lousy, but it doesn't turn into a serious infection. It's annoying more than anything else, as it seems to be with the President of the United States. And to support that lack of severity, the rebound for hospitalizations was very low. So in other words, a very low risk of going into hospital. And uh, the risk of rebound was actually higher the older you were and the more risk factors you had for severe COVID-19 in the first place. But those are the people who get Paxlovid and Molnupiravir, so that might be a pre-selection. Right. So are there implications here for how it's prescribed? Like maybe should the course be longer or is this just a little kind of blip that we have to deal with? It may be. 
like much in this area of COVID where people tend to have cut corners is in the right dosage. And we noticed that with vaccines. So as we said several times on Coronacast, the Pfizer vaccine was probably at too low a dose, too close together, whereas uh, Moderna was a higher dose a bit further apart. And it may well be true of the antivirals that they were rushing to get them through, trying to find out whether or not they were effective and safe. And the dosage part uh, fell between the cracks a bit. So they are safe. They are effective. It's just that fine tuning of the dosage. Well, they're not entirely safe. (laughs) Okay. well, let's go into that. We're talking about antivirals now. They're talking about the antivirals. So the vaccines are safe. But the antivirals, um, Paxlovid has a lot of interactions with other drugs. and You've got to be careful. There's the risk of fetal abnormality if you're taking them, if you're um, of childbearing age and female. So there, you know, there are issues to do with these and also kidney damage. There's a problem with ki- if you've got kidney damage. So they're not straightforward to prescribe, which is one of the problems with them, particularly Paxlovid. So they're de- definitely saving lives, but they have to be treated with caution. What about rebound infections on people who, who aren't on an antiviral? Is that something that we're seeing? It's more extended positivity. And we're, you know, we're getting a bit of feedback here on you know, people who've got positive rat tests several days after... They've been infected longer than they expected. There are jurisdictions which are trying to reduce the isolation time to five days as opposed to seven days. And people are wondering how long, in fact, you're infectious for. So that's more the case if you've been infected. So let me just give you the figures as they're known. The British probably have amongst the best data. If you're only isolating for five days, about one in three people released from isolation at five days are still going to be infectious. 14 days, it's about 1%. And about t- at 10 days, it's 5%. So even at seven days, it's still about 6% people being infectious. So the longer you are, the less infectious you're likely to be. But you've got to think about the economy and everything else. But five days, a lot of people are going to go back into the community and spread it. Well, at the moment, I think every jurisdiction in Australia, the isolation period is seven days. I probably have to double check that. It is about finding the sweet spot. Is there any, is there any suggestion that we r- drop it to five days like they have in the States? Um, I think there's been pressure, but I, I think it's, so far it's been resisted. And is seven days long enough? Well, that's the question. And some people are saying, well, it's a theoretical infectiousness. The rat tests are usually negative and rat tests are, whilst for all their problems, they're not a bad measure of whether or not you're contagious. But who knows, really? But you are, uh, even at seven days, we are sending people back into the community who are infectious. So speaking of time and COVID, another thing that we're getting a lot of questions about is long COVID. It's one of those things that as more people are experiencing it, there's a lot of interest in the community about it. And there's also more research coming out about it, including a study that's just been um, released, which identifies 62 different symptoms associated with long COVID. We hear a lot about things like fatigue and brain fog. What are some of the other symptoms that they've identified? Well, this is a study where they've looked at about half a million adults with confirmed infection with COVID-19. The control group, in other words, people with no evidence of COVID-19 infection of about 2 million people. How did they find those people? I feel like everyone's had COVID now. It's really off a large large database uh, of primary care in the UK. Britain now has some superb statistical databases. And what they found was there are about 62 symptoms associated with long COVID. The most significant one was anosmia, so loss of smell, hair loss, interestingly, sneezing, ejaculation difficulty, reduced libido. Those were the top ranking symptoms. 
women are at more risk of long COVID than men, belonging to an ethnic minority, socioeconomic deprivation, smoking, obesity, and a wide range of other illnesses. The issue here, and it's coming out in other research as well, is that people, there, there's no question in the international data that people who lived in, live in relative deprivation in the poorer suburbs, exposed to things like smoking, higher rates of obesity, and indeed air pollution, may well be at greater risk for both COVID in the first place and long COVID symptoms. And so it's a double whammy there for people living in those areas. So again, like many things in medicine, it's uh, and health, it's a postcode issue. And it, it's just uh, so incredibly depriving if you're already living in a place where perhaps you are struggling to cover your bills and that sort of thing. If you're then dealing with prolonged symptoms of things like fatigue, then that makes it even harder to make a living. Yes, compounded. So what's the what's the sort of intervention then? We're talking about these are symptoms that persist after 12 weeks. Lots of people who have COVID sort of have a few weeks of feeling pretty lousy and then they sort of gradually get better. Long COVID's defined as being more than 12 weeks. Do we have uh, policies in Australia or emerging policies in Australia about how to deal with this? Because it's going to affect a lot of people. There are probably two main interventions. One is vaccination and keeping your boosters up to date and making sure you're up to date with your vaccination. That does look as though it reduces the risk of long COVID symptoms. You still get them, and it maybe goes from 30% down to 10 or 15%, but that's still a lot of people. Some people would say it's even lower than that. The second is mask wearing and ventilation, which you've talked about in this week's Coronacast or Coronacast Extra, is that that environmental reduction and slowing down the spread so fewer people actually get the infection will also have an impact. But of course, the more disadvantaged you are, the more pressed you are, the more you need to actually work and can't afford time off, the less likely you are to be able to take precautions. And thank you to everyone who's written in about the ventilation special. I had a lot of fun making it. And it was also really eye-opening for me, Norman, to see the, just the massive variances in ventilation across different settings. Yes, including here at the ABC. Well, yeah, exactly. Yes, and you've had a question from Rach. She says, loved the special app on ventilation. Really interesting to hear the various CO2 readings from different settings. I'd like to hear more about what regular people can do. Does opening one or two car windows make enough of a difference to be worthwhile, especially in winter when it's cold, or in a taxi where the taxi driver may not want the windows open? Well, I can only speak to my own experience, but I found it really interesting to see how quickly the CO2 levels dropped when I did something as simple as opening a window. So in the car, there was a meeting room that we were in. We had like seven people jammed in a meeting room, which in retrospect was just a stupid idea. But we opened the door and within a few minutes, it was half of what it had been before. And that seems to be what the best practice um, says as well. I guess the thing that I would say about this is it's great for regular people to be aware of it and be taking action where they can. But what I really kind of hope um, or what it really sounds like is coming through from experts like Lydia Morawska, who we spoke to in that episode, is that we need systemic change. It actually needs to be led by government and business that environments are safe, that doesn't have to rely on individual people taking action. That's the whole kind of point. With regulation. And of course, one of the high levels you found was on an aeroplane. It's hard to open the doors of an aeroplane. Well, they, they actually advise against it most of the time. Do they? Oh, one <laughs> well, that's all we've got time for on today's Coronacast. We'll be back as normal next Wednesday. I'll limp off into the sunset. <laughs> Get a knee replacement, Norman. No. <laughs> See you next week. <laughs> <laughs> 